and open it up to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 15. I want to bring you a message today that I've entitled, The Shepherd Who Seeks. The Shepherd Who Seeks. Originally, I was going to call this The Joy of God, because that is the grand theme of this chapter, but we'll have to save that for another week. I constantly feel a sense of uh, inadequacy during sermon preparation because I I start to dig into a text and I want to communicate the grandeur and the splendor of God, and yet it seems like the deeper that I go sometimes, the more that I find, and it seems that I can never really bring you everything in all of its fullness before you. But we are in this middle section of Luke's gospel and have been on our way to Jerusalem since chapter 9 and verse 51. And this section of Luke's gospel will run all the way to the 19th chapter and end in verse 27. From that point on and until the end of the book, we will focus on the the events of the cross, the death, the burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's here in this middle section, in these 10 chapters, that we run into more than 20 parables of the nearly 40 that he used and taught, and that is woven into the gospel record. We only find parables in the synoptic gospels. And for those of you who haven't been here since the beginning, when we started, the synoptic gospels comprise of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three gospels only. And that word synoptic just simply is a word that means to view the same, as in a similar perspective. And so we only find parables in the synoptic Gospels, and we never find any recorded in the Gospel of John. But it's here in Luke 15 that we find three of Jesus' most memorable parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the lost son. All three parables follow a similar pattern uh, with one another of something being uh, valuable, being lost, something being sought, uh, found, restored, and then celebrated over. And so we're going to take them one by one, and this week we're going to start to look at the first one, and that is the parable of the lost sheep. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do so with me. Luke chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. God's holy and inerrant Word says this, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are contained within it. 
Lord, by the power of your spirit, we pray that it would work deep into the soil of our hearts, that we might uh, be able to apply it, live it, love it, and treasure it, God. Help your uh, servant to speak your word this morning, God, a mere man. And Father, we just pray that we would be receptive to your word this morning, and we would apply it to our lives. We thank you for it. And it's in your son's precious name we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you this question this morning, and that is this. What is it that you think of when you think of God? What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? To be sure, the greatest thought that you can ever entertain in your mind will be about God. And regardless of what you say that you affirm, whether by confessional statement, by creed, or by church covenant, or whatever it is, all of that will matter very little in comparisons to your actual thoughts about God. The higher your thoughts about God, the higher and loftier your worship will be. The higher your thoughts about God, the higher and holier your living will be. And the higher your thoughts about God, the higher and purer your religion will be. But on the other hand, the lower your thoughts about God, and the lower and more debased your worship will be. The lower and more immoral your living will be. And the lower your thoughts about God, the more apostate your religion will be. Everything in your life hinges upon your understanding of who God is. And no man, no woman, no church will ever rise above its righteous, true, pure thoughts about the living God. The history of the church has demonstrated again and again that when high thoughts about God and high thoughts about the inspiration and authority of God's word go out the door, her worship and her moral standards are soon to follow. And to substitute any thoughts about God that are contrary to what he has revealed about himself in his word amounts to nothing less than idolatry of the mind. Idolatry is not simply kneeling down before some idol that we've carved out of wood and we've fashioned and we've painted. But idolatry is a sin in which we make God out to be something that he is not. We may think in our minds that we are a lot better than some of those third world countries that where idols prevail by the thousands like India or Haiti or wherever it may be. But truth be told, once that you have adulterated the character of God and you've created in your mind a God other than what has been revealed in his word, you have jumped head deep into the most grievous of sins, namely idolatry. A.W. Tozer once wrote, A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness to the true God. Idolatry is so important of a sin to avoid that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first three of them were on idolatry. And even in the New Testament, 
we're warned in 1 John 5, 21, that as little children, we are to guard ourselves from idols. Now, that's not simply a warning for us as believers to guard ourselves from little statues and figurines to which we might bow down to. But it's a warning to watch out for any philosophy, any representation, or any unworthy thought about the character and nature of God that we may have set up in our hearts. That is contrary to the character and nature of God that he has revealed about himself in his word. Colossians 3.5 reinforces this concept that idols are not limited to figurines and objects when it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And i got to confess to you, a very reputable website that I read this week blew this. It made the case that idols are nothing but figurines. That is not the case because the testimony of Scripture says that. Idolatry is exactly what God accused the elders in Israel in Ezekiel 14 when he told Ezekiel to say to them in verse 4. He said this, Therefore, speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel, listen to this, who sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity. They hadn't made any uh, figurines of silver or gold statues, and there weren't any kind of carvings of stone that God is talking about, but he's talking about idols of their heart, things that they had set up in their mind in place of God that had captivated their affections and attention, and they became objects of worship other than the living God himself. And you can be certain that God is just as equally offended by an idol in your mind as he is for you to have an idol in your hand. The Pharisees, they were guilty of this type of idolatry. They worship the form of their religion rather than the God who is behind them. They worship their traditions more than the God behind their traditions. And as a result, their worship was absolutely useless. In fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13, and he applied it to the Pharisees and he said, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They had all appearances of an outward vitality in the things of God. But Jesus told them that they were nothing more than a whitewashed tomb and were full of dead men's bones. Because in the mind of a Pharisee, God was only a savior to those that looked like them. They looked the right way. They did the right things. They came from the right lineage or heritage. And there was no way that the God that they worshipped, that's little g, the God that they had created in their own minds would ever save a person who wasn't like them. And as we move from Luke 14 and on to 15 this morning, we see Jesus going into hand-to-hand combat with the sin of idolatry. The gloves came off in Luke 14, and Jesus threw a knockout punch at the sin of idolatry when he basically said that if you want to be his disciple, he must have preeminence in your life. 
He must be first. He must be before your family. He must be before your possessions. He must be before even your own self. You must give up all. You must relinquish all. You must surrender all in complete and total allegiance to him. In other words, there is no room for idolatry in your life. Not your family, not your job, not your career, not your status, not your money, not your homes. Nothing should come before him. And there is no room for you to worship anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. You must love him supremely. You must love him wholly. And you must worship him exclusively. And he ended that discourse in chapter 14 with the words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Beloved, is Jesus Christ first in your life? Honestly, when you look at your life and you examine your life, is he first? Does he get first dibs or does he get leftovers? Do you pursue so many other things in this world that maybe you'll get around to reading about him and his word? Maybe you'll get around to spending some time in prayer with him. Be honest with yourself this morning. Don't fool anybody. God knows your heart. Have you made Christ first? Is he exclusively yours this morning? And so Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in this shocking twist as we move into chapter 15, it is that the ones who actually are drawing near to Christ... To hear what he had to say, it wasn't the religious elite who were by all appearances the godly ones of Israel, but it was the most despised of Jewish society who stepped forward to listen to what he actually has to say. And we see that in verse 1 of Luke 15. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming here or coming near him to listen to him. They are the ones who wanted to hear what he had to say tax collectors and sinners, not the ones who were supposed to be leading the people to God, but not the spiritually elite, but tax collectors and sinners. Now we have to ask ourselves this question. Why in the world is a tax collector singled out? Why do they get this honorable mention of who's who and deplorables and outcasts that are coming to listen to Jesus Christ? One would think sinners would be a catch-all right? For those who are considered to be outside the religious community. A sinner is one who is considered ritually unclean. They failed to follow the law of Moses, or they didn't walk with God. They might be murderers, drunkards, fornicators, prostitutes, basically anyone who made absolutely no attempt to live according to the law of God. And that seems like a pretty broad enough category to cover a lot of people. And yet these tax collectors, they get special recognition. And why is that? It's because the single least esteemed man in Jewish society during the first century was a tax collector. A tax collector was a a Jew who worked for Rome, and he stole money from his own people. He was a, a sellout, if you will. Because he was hired by Rome, and therefore he was seen as the ultimate kind of traitor. 
for a little kickback from the Romans, a little cut off the top of whatever he collected in taxes from his fellow countrymen, he was more than pleased to betray them. And guess what? Whatever he decided the tax rate was going to be for that day, that's what the tax rate was going to be. And he had the full authority of Rome behind him to enforce it. Now the Jews, they hated the Romans because they occupied their country, but even more so hated was one of their own, a Jew who would willingly and voluntarily collect taxes on Rome's behalf. I was trying to think of an illustration for you kids, how you might feel towards a tax collector. Imagine, uh, imagine somebody, your mom and dad, got, you got in trouble with your parents, and they said, uh, hey, uh, I've got a guest coming over to give you your spank. You're in trouble. And uh, I'm going to give them your Legos or your Shopkins or whatever it is. And uh, they're actually going to come over and give you the spank. And so you hear a knock at the door, and it's your best friend. <laughs> and he says, I'm here to collect my Legos and my Shopkins, and who gets the spank? Would you want to be around that person anymore after they gave you that spank? No. That's a a minor, small side to trying to understand and comprehend that. But that's what the Israelites, the Jews, looked at these tax collectors. They didn't want to have nothing to do with them. They had forsaken their loyalty to their nationalism. They had even forsaken their religion all for money. A tax collector could never be a judge. They could never be a witness in a case. And they were never, ever allowed to enter a synagogue. And if by chance a tax collector actually entered into your home, your home was now considered ceremonially unclean. And if there was anything ever that could bring together the conservative arm of Judaism and the liberal arm of Judaism, it was the tax collector. Because rabbis from both strains both agreed and said and wrote that it is entirely appropriate for you to lie to a tax collector if necessary. That's one thing they could agree on. And so you can sort of imagine the hostility that the Jews had towards a tax collector and how they wanted to avoid them like the plague. In fact, the tax collector was so despised that in Matthew 18, when Jesus outlined the uh, process for church discipline, he said in verse 17 of the unrepentant church member, he said, if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's pretty strong language because the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with a Gentile or a tax collector, and they separated themselves as far as they could away from them. And that's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18, is that an unrepentant person who has gone through the process of church discipline and will not not turn away from his sin is to be separated from the life of the church, and he is now considered an evangelical prospect. So in verse 2, the Pharisees see these despised people coming to Jesus, and they are just beside themselves. If this guy is who he says he is, and if he claims to be from God, then surely he would know better than to be around these sorts of people. And so that's their accusation against him in verse 2, and it says, Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So remember, there's about 6,000 of these Pharisees running around in Israel during the time of Jesus, and it's no wonder we keep running into them throughout Luke's gospel. But they were the lay people who 
taught in the synagogues and they knew their Bible. That was their job. And we see them here with these scribes, which we frequently do as well. These were the scholars. These were the academics who made interpretations of the law. They helped the Pharisees understand the enormous burden of regulations that were needed with such a massive system of rules that they had created. But here they are, and the scribes are once again in their self-righteous and sanctimonious position, grumbling and complaining like we saw them in verse 30 of Luke chapter 5. Now, this particular word for grumble is only used twice in the New Testament. And it's only used in Luke, and it means to complain or be indignant. But it is always within the context of being in a group. And that's the thing about grumbling and complaining, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to grumble and complain when everyone else is doing it. It's easy to jump on that bandwagon and complain about everything under the sun if you're in a group. And the only antidote for that is a joyful and thankful heart. We met a lady, we've known her for a while, saw her at a picnic or one day, and she's got this sweet southern accent. She's been up here for 30, 40 years, and she's still got the sweet accent. And uh, somebody asked her about her health, and she goes, Oh, honey, I don't like to complain. It just brings me down and everybody else too. But that's the truth. People love to complain in a group. And she's got a thankful, joyful heart. But the Pharisees and the scribe, they're murmuring with one another because the Lord is associating with these outcasts of Jewish society. And it even says that He is eating with them. Now, to eat with someone in the Middle East was a big deal. It was a a sign of acceptance with that person. It was a table of fellowship in which you were saying that you and that person were on good terms. You regard them favorably. You approve of that person. But to not eat with someone was a way to say to that person that you're not welcome. You and I have no commonality, no level of acceptance with one another. And that's what the Apostle Paul was trying to emphasize in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, when he was telling the church at Corinth that they weren't supposed to be around anyone who called themselves a believer in Christ, but lived a life blatantly contrary to their testimony. He said in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with, and here's the key, any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so, To eat with them would be a way to say that you accept them as a believer, and yet they are living a life that contradicts what they confess. And that's the key in this verse. It's the so-called brother. And yet Paul says, don't even eat with them. Don't show them that you accept their hypocritical confession of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here is Jesus receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors, and yet this is completely in line with the mission of Jesus Christ. It's the immoral people of this world that Jesus has come to rescue. He said in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners, or sinners to repentance. 
And in Luke 19, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that begs the question this morning. If you and I are to be salt and light to this world, if we are to be ambassadors for Christ, how many of us are even just having a meal with someone who's not a believer? Or not at all like us? When was the last time you invited someone into your home for dinner or a game night who wasn't a Christian? Who do you know that needs to hear the gospel from you that you need to have over to your home for a campfire and some s'mores? And if Jesus said that he is sending us out as sheep among wolves, how many of us in this room are trying to live our life like sheep among sheep? And we're trying to insulate ourselves from the world by making sure that our paths never cross. Listen, you and I will never ever be light to the world if you never have the world around you to shine upon. Listen to Philippians 2, 14 and 15, and how beautifully this fits in with Luke 15 too. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, right? Not like these Pharisees in Luke. So that... You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, and here's the key, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. It's not a matter of you not having no contact with the world. The Bible doesn't teach that. But it's a matter of having no conformity to the world. That's the issue. And as a believer, you are supposed to be exerting some sort of influence over it. And the only way that you and I are going to be light to the world, the only way that you are going to let your light shine among men, is if we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and that means you've got to spend some time around them. And so... In order to expose these Pharisees' hearts towards the lost, he told them a parable beginning in verses 3 and 4. So he tells them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? So this is a rhetorical question. This is a question that's not designed to elicit an answer, but rather it's a question that's designed to make a point. What man among you, or who in their right mind wouldn't do this? Or which one of you have two brain cells touching together that would not do this? The point being is that everyone would do this. But he says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, you might be sitting there this morning and thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? What's just one sheep out of a hundred? I mean, we're only talking about one percent of my population of sheep that I own. So economically, there's not this great big loss. I mean, if you have 100 sheep, thanks to Google, your flock cost about $23,500 to buy 100 sheep. 
And so you might think to yourself, you know what, what's 235 bucks in the grand scheme of things, right? If I lose one. You don't necessarily like it, but you might think to yourself, you know what, that's not that big a deal. Let me see if I can put into your mind the same principle here. Those of you who are parents of children, if you were going to lose one of them, which one would you pick? Those of you who have parents, if you were going to lose one of them, which one would you choose? Those of you who have grandparents and whom you love to be around, if you were going to lose one of them, which one would you pick? Those of you who have a brother or sister and you were going to lose one of them, which one would it be? Now, hopefully none of those are easy decisions for you and you're like, I know who I'm picking. And hopefully in your mind you have not thought, you've thought to yourself, I don't want to lose none of them. I don't want to lose, I don't want to give up any of them. And that's the point of this. When it comes to something you love, it's not a matter of economics. It's a matter of affection. You see, because this shepherd in this story, he loves his sheep. He adores his sheep. This shepherd, he knows every single one of them by name. This shepherd is so intimate with his sheep that when he speaks, the sheep hear his voice and they know it. This shepherd, he knows every single hair on their head. This shepherd knows what his sheep fears. This shepherd knows their insecurities. This shepherd, he knows their failures. He knows their struggles. He knows every single thing about them. And he is intimately acquainted with all their ways. Beloved of God, this parable is not about some random shepherd in Israel who lost one sheep. This is a parable. There's a spiritual reality here to this earthly story. This is about your heavenly Father who pursued you, who came looking for you because He loves you. He loves you so much that He's willing to sacrifice anything that is necessary to get you back, even if it means that He has to send His own dear, precious Son, His beloved Son with whom He's well pleased. This is about your Heavenly Father who came looking for you because He knows you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's intimately acquainted with all, your, all of your ways. And one day, He called you. He called you by name. And you heard His voice for the very, very first time. Do you remember that day? Do you remember the day the Lord called your name and took off the scales of your eyes so that you could see Him? Do you remember that Do you remember the day that he came looking for you and he called your name and he said to you, come home. Doug, come home. John, Nate, Jill, Pam, come home. Come home. We're all like sheep that have gone astray. We're all lost at one time in our lives. Titus 3 says that we were all once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, 
He saved us. He saved us not on the basis of the deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's why He called us. None of us did anything to deserve God's good favor. None of us were smarter than everyone else, or more noble, or anything like that. We were all like runaway sheep. And God is still pursuing sheep today. And you know what? There is not one single one of them that will ever be left behind. And guess what? They don't always look like you and I do. They don't always act like you and I do. They don't always think like you and I do. They don't do the same things that you and I do. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, listen to the type of stray sheep that God can redeem. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to verse 11. Such were some of you. This is the point to the Pharisees. They were the ones who were supposed to be seeking the lost sheep. They were the ones who were supposed to be bringing people to God, but instead they were pushing people away from God. They were the ones that thought they were to bring them into their fold, and Jesus said, you are making them twice as much a son of hell as themselves, in Matthew 23. They thought they knew the heart of God, but they knew absolutely nothing of God's heart. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 5. Son of man, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And the job they were supposed to be doing, the mission that they were supposed to be engaged in of strengthening the sickly and helping to heal the diseased and binding up the broken and bringing back the scattered and seeking for the lost. They didn't want to have any part of it because they thought that God didn't want to have a part in it. They had created an idol of God within their own minds. They had fashioned a God in their own image so that He would be like them. And so they profaned the character of God because of their false assumptions about who God would and wouldn't save. Now let me ask you this morning, have you entertained 
such thoughts in your mind? Have you ever thought to yourself, there is absolutely no way that God would ever save a person like that? That person is way too far off the reservation that God would never redeem the likes of them. Listen, God is in the business of doing the seemingly impossible task of saving the most helpless of cases and bringing home each and every sheep that are His. No one is outside the scope of God's mercy and salvation. And I wonder, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God can redeem a prostitute? Do you honestly believe that God can redeem a homosexual? A drunkard? A fornicator? That person in your mind that you've written off? Can God save that person? But there's something more astounding that we're going to have to look at in more detail next week. And we're going to read verse 5 and pick up from there. But it says this. When he has found it, when he finds that sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I couldn't get past rejoicing. God redeemed each and every one of us, and he rejoiced. It made him happy. We have a great shepherd that rejoices over seeking and saving the lost. And when God found you, it made him rejoice in the heavenly places. Is this anything that you have ever given consideration of when you think about God in your mind? We have a God who rejoices over saving sinners. He's seeking and He's a saving God. Does that thought come to your mind when you think about God? We're going to look into this attribute of God when we pick up in our text next week. But let's pray. Father, we can't help but be in your word and learn more about you and just be astonished. Astonished at your goodness to us, God. We were all rebellious. We were all shaking our fists at you, and yet you called us out by name. God, just help us to treasure that. Help us to worship you in gratitude for what you've accomplished in our lives. God, there are so many people in this world that are looking for some false miracle, some false hope, some false manifestation of you. But Lord, when you look at a believer in this world, you are looking at a miracle. Help us to understand that. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.